Hello and welcome to another episode of A Slice of Health, the Candid Health Chat podcast, where we slice away health truth from health fiction. Join me and my friends as we challenge common health myths via chit chat, powered by several cups of coffee. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and do visit us at a sliceofhealth.club. Let's get to today's episode. On today's episode, we are joined by Belinda Otas, journalist, writer, media consultant, blogger, and art enthusiast. I have been anticipating this interview since last year when I heard her speak at a Mansag conference. She really is a champion who inspires me, and I hope she inspires you too. Belinda and I bond over our love for African contemporary art in the first 15 minutes of this episode. Art has such a way of conveying intense emotion and telling compelling stories that inspire change and bring healing as well. Belinda's story is also one of courage, endurance and standing strong despite all odds. She shares how her faith and practice of gratitude has also been key as she tells you about her life living on dialysis. You can follow her on Instagram at Belinda Otas. Do enjoy the episode as you hear Belinda's dialysis story. So hello champions, welcome back to another episode of A Slice of Health. Today we are joined by Belinda. Hello Belinda. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. So tell us a lot about yourself Belinda. Where where would you like me to start? (laughs) Wherever you want to start from would be absolutely great. Okay, well, I am Belinda Otis. I'm a journalist, editor, blogger, even though my blogging life has been on hold for some time now, but I look forward to going back to it later this year. Okay. Um, I love theater. I abs- I can sleep in a theater as long as, you know, the tickets are ready to go. You can call <laughs> me anytime, any day, I'm good to go. Okay. Um, but at the same time, you know, with all of this interesting stuff. Oh, and I forgot to add, I absolutely love contemporary African art. Okay. I can sleep in an art gallery with the with you know content and work from African artists, you know, and I have a few favorites, but that would be a conversation for another day. <laughs> um, in addition to loving the arts and and being a theater fanatic, um, I also happen to live on dialysis. So which explains why I'm on your podcast today. On the podcast today, yes. And talking about contemporary art, are you a fan of um, Pedro Alassise? Oh, I love her work. I mean, I only started getting to know her last year. Yeah. Because I was at, um, I've only, prior to last year, I had only seen her work online. Yeah. But um, at Contemporary 154 last year, I saw her work face to face. And it was absolutely brilliant. I love the way she tells the stories of women, um, people who are oppressed, you know. I mean, I don't know if that's her intention, but, but when you're looking at her work and the way she titles her work and just the framing of everything and how she contextualizes her work, you know, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And at the same time, beautiful and colorful. And and I love colors. So anything with colors, I'm in, I'm there anytime, any day. You can count on me for that. I just, I love her artistic work. I love the way she thinks and, and the stories that come through. I mean, she doesn't tell just one story. You, you can interpret her work in so many different ways and you find yourself circling back to the same theme that first of all crosses your mind when you first come in contact with her work, you know? And, and I happen to follow her on Instagram as well. Yeah, she's, and, she's amazing. Uh, she's amazing. She is, she is, you know? I love her work. Another person that really excites me is um, Ifejika um, Akinluyi. Okay. I, I hope I got her name right. Yeah, um, yeah, that's Dora's daughter, isn't she? Yeah, Dora Kiloe's daughter. She's yes. amazing. Uh, and she's so, she, I, I had the opportunity and I was blessed to interview her a very long time ago. It was a very short interview, but she's so down to earth. So, so, and very kind. She was very kind to me when I made contact with her. And, and that's one thing that for me stands out a lot when I first of all reach out to people to interview them, mm-hmm. you know how they respond to you and her kindness was just out of this world. Another person that I also, I, I just, I love her work is, um, oh my gosh, I can't believe her name escapes me right now. She's also Nigerian. Her name, I think her name is Inenka. I can't remember now. You know what? My, 
my phone is with me. Um, I, don't worry, it won't ring, it's on silence. <laughs> Um, but you know what? If I remember her name as we're talking, I'll 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 let you know. Okay. Um, but her work is absolutely brilliant. She paints women as well and women in different scenarios. She, you know, she's just she's just honestly, I anytime, any day, I if I had the money, I would buy her work. Then another person whose work also excites me is Marcelina Aquajata. I don't know if you know about her. No, I don't think so. Okay, so basically she uses fabrics. Mm-hmm. You know, she uses um textile fabrics to create her her, her artwork and they they just uh, they're so outstanding, you know. And then um an African American artist that I'm really excited about is Bisa Butler. You know, her work is so it's so powerful, so intense, and she's telling the stories of African Americans who have been forgotten in history. She's 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 giving them an opportunity to tell tell people who they are through her work, and her work is so vivid. Again, I I came across her work online, and once again at Contemporary Fifty Four last year, I finally saw it live for myself, and honestly, it was. It was brilliant. Again, everything is made from fabric. There is no paint, nothing. But when you see the work, you actually think it's painted, but it isn't. Yeah. Everything is made from fabric. And if you get a chance to follow her online, trust me, I truly believe you'll fall in love with her work. Yeah. And there's so many artists out there. Out there. Um, Nelson Makoma from South Africa is another favorite. Um, Victor Hiameno from Nigeria is a favorite yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's so many, many. There's a young lady. Um, her name on Instagram is Xenia Art, and she is just honestly, I love. She uses um thread and nails, I believe, or pins. I can't remember now mm. to to do her work. And the 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 detail, it's so intricate. The time, it just goes to show how much time artists put into their work. Mm-hmm. You know, and and to be that disciplined is another thing I also appreciate about about an artist. But you know, I could go on and on about African artists. So let's let's get this interview started. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that was that was great, and I think our listeners would also um, really enjoy you know listening to something that you're passionate about because art is really um, an amazing way to tell a story, and that's what we're trying to do with the podcast as well: tell stories that empower and encourage and bring healing. And I think art does that in in such absolutely. A way. I agree with you. You know, totally. For me, art is life. Mm. if I'm honest that's the way I see it you know two things that get me out of a funky um, mood uh, mood is the theater and art contemporary art you know Mm. I I I, I'm just so right now I'm just so proud of the contemporary African art scene you know like finally our artists are getting the recognition that they they absolutely deserve they've earned it they've worked for it you know and and no longer should I, I do not for one second think any artist from the continent should be relegated to the to the to the last end of the gallery no they should be at the forefront because as far as i'm concerned they are leading the conversation on the continent and around the world on different different issues you just need to know which one is for you and the work that you know you want to follow yeah, and yes, I remember now the artist whose name I forgot is Undidi Emefiele. Okay. I don't know if you know her, but honestly, again, I had the opportunity to interview her. And when she was talking about her, because she grew up in northern Nigeria, and she was talking about how women are relegated to the back, and she wanted to talk about women and bring, honestly, if you, if you see her artwork and the women she paints in her work and the way she brings them to the foreground, um, to the forefront, it's absolutely breathtaking. I just, honestly, I love the work. I'm praying to win the lottery so that I can buy the works of yeah. the different artists I've mentioned. But until then, I, I'm happy to just see it live. <laughs> That's amazing. That is so awesome. Um, and you, you said something at the beginning, which is, um, you know, one of the reasons that we've invited you and you've graciously accepted to come on the episode is that you are um, currently living, um, going through dialysis um, regularly. So could you tell us a bit about your journey and how you got to this point in terms of needing dialysis? Ooh, 
Well, let's put it like this. Um, I was born in Nigeria, raised in Nigeria. I lived in Nigeria until I was 16 years old. In fact, it was because of my health that I came to the, to the UK at the age of 16. So what, what happened was um, I, I got sick when I was about 15. Mm. And um, basically started with typhoid fever, you know, and for some reason, it just morphed into different things. It, from typhoid fever, it's ulcer. From ulcer, it's, I've got holes in my skull. You know, just different, different things. And for a whole year, no one could tell my parents what was wrong with me. And um, as you know, the, the Nigerian um, health infrastructure is not the best. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's something that concerns all of us to date. Mm. Um, and, and um, you know, I went from one doctor to the other. And then at some point, things came to a head and it just became unbearable, the pain I was in. It was so bad. Um, and I remember I was in boarding school at the time. I, you know, I had to keep going home every now and again, you know, to, to, to see a doctor because I was so sick and always so sick. But I remember towards, um, at the point where you do your, um, what's it called, SSC, so that you can go to university, was like two or three months before that time. Mm -hmm. And I'd asked the school that I was, I was at at the time to let me go home because I was feeling so very ill. I could barely walk, you know. I was always, um, you know, I had to bend over just to be able to stand up or do anything. I couldn't stand straight because the pain in my lower abdomen was so severe. And then I would have the most horrific migraines. It was as if someone had taken, um, had taken a nail and a hammer to my head. Wow. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. And it's now I understand what that was. My blood pressure was in the stratosphere. So that's why I was having such terrible um, migraine. Mm. And to date, whenever my blood pressure is high, that's the same kind of migraine I get. And it's usually worse on the on the right side for me, you know? So anyway, I asked the school authority to let me go home and they would, they, they said no, but I guess God being so merciful to me, my mom started feeling this uneasiness at home. Mm. And I remember she said she was in her shop. My mom is late now, but whenever she told the story, she, because she, she owned the supermarket at the time on this particular day, she said she was in her store and she had said to her girl who, um, like the lady who used to work with her to say, oh, let's close. It looks like it's going to be, it's going to rain because the sky had gone so dark. And the lady looked at her like she had lost her mind. And the lady was like, no, it's not, it's not going to rain. It's sunny and blah, blah, blah. My mom said in that instant, she knew something was wrong with one of her children. Mm. And the thing was at the time, I think about three or four were in boarding school. So she wasn't sure where to start. So she was just like, you know what? I'm going to start with Belinda being the eldest. She came to where I was and I couldn't even walk to the car to see her. Goodness. My mom got to my school at night. She came at night time. She didn't come during the day because her, her supermarket was on the island and I was, my school was in a place called Idimo in Ejibo local government. It was a boarding school, so we were kind of cut off from the rest of Lagos. Then it wasn't developed. Well, I think it's probably very well developed now because I went to Queensland College. And... Um, and by the time she got to me, it was, it was night. But there was nobody to sign me out because um, some students had gone on an excursion somewhere. And the vice principal, who is responsible for um, signing out people, was, was not, on, um, was not in, at school at the time. He had gone with them. So um, the, pers the next person was like, um, they are not in a position to sign me out. And my mom has to come the next day. Wow. And as my mom was on the way back, home yeah the school bus was coming back so yeah. as soon as my mom saw the school bus she turned around and she spoke to the vice principal and everything and she said if i don't take this girl home my husband is gonna have me because she's very sick and she was really very concerned about the state i was in because i'd lost so much weight i could barely walk i couldn't stand nothing you know so anyway, the, the vice principal um, signed me out and that was my last day at school. I never went back to school. I never even did the SSE they wanted me to do, you know. And uh, I remember I went straight to, the, um, to the, the family clinic we normally go to. And he looked at me. Funny enough, he was my uncle. 
And he looked at me and he said he was going to call my other uncle who happens to be the one who owns the clinic. But at the time he was in the U.S. because he was also a practicing doctor in the U.S. And so he just gave me some painkillers to help me. And I went home. Um, two days after I got home, in the middle of the night, I started screaming my head off. My abdomen was, I mean, I was in so much pain. It was horrible. So my mom took me back to the clinic. My uncle saw me and he was honest to my mom and said, he, he doesn't know what's going on, but he's going to go call my uncle. And in the interim, my mom called my dad who was away at the time. So my dad told her to take me to a different hospital. Mm. And when we got there, you know, they were so sure it was my appendix that was giving me hell and they decided to operate, you know, but, um, I remember this vividly while I was in so much pain and, you know, I was in and out, you know, because sometimes I could barely speak. I, I will never forget this. The anesthetist came in, he took a look at me and he said, no, it's not her appendix. She's having renal failure. Yeah. And I didn't even know what renal failure was. You know, but I remember that the other doctors shut him up mm. and said, no, they can bet their life on it. That is my appendix, da, 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 da. And I remember he took my blood pressure. My blood pressure was around two something, 190. It was very high. <laughs> so Honestly, it was, it was, it was, it was so high that if, you know, as a 16 year old, I, 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 I didn't understand any of these things that was going on around me it, as much as I remember some detail, yeah. of, you know, but I didn't understand it. I didn't know what blood pressure was. I didn't know what um, renal failure was, I, you know, up until that time, I'd never even thought about what the kidney does in the body, you know? Yes, yeah. So, so, you know, anyway, my uncle who had already said, Oh, he's going to go speak to my other uncle in the U S and tell him the, the, the symptoms I'm, um, I'm demonstrating or the symptoms that he can see. He, he did go ahead to call my uncle. And because of the time difference, by the time my uncle got back to him, they had already taken me to the theater operated on me. Now, mind you, before this time, my kidneys were still working. Mm. I could still pass urine and all that. But by the time they took me to theater and back, the kidneys had stopped working because I guess the, the, the stress of surgery was too much for my body to handle. And by the time I came back from surgery, my kidneys were gone. Now, this is the joke. You take me to surgery. Your anesthetist tells you that I'm having renal failure. You bring me back from surgery and then you put me on a drip. Yeah. So they are pumping me with drips. <laughs> and... By this time, my uncle got back to us, and the, the, what he said was, it's not her appendix, it's her kidneys. Don't let them operate on her, but it was too late. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and, and, and that one action, um, taking out my appendix, changed my life forever. And I remember three days after, I started swelling up, and at this point, then I came back to my parents and said, oh, my kidneys are failing. This is after they told my parents that it was my appendix before. And, and um, yeah, that, that was it, basically. And I remember after a week, they sent me home and they said, oh, they're really sorry, but there was nothing more they could do for me. And they actually sent me home. They didn't even have a dialysis unit in this particular hospital. Nothing to die. Yeah, they sent me. They, yeah, they basically sent me home, and they gave me my parents the name of a of a of a nephrologist at Lute Hospital, and told my parents to go and look for her. That maybe she can help me. And so I get home. I'm not in the in the best of you know health, and then three days after I get home, I start swelling, like really swelling up. Like you know, I'm 16 years old. My breast was still flat, like my chest was still flat. I had no breast, nothing. But at this point, it's like the water in my body was looking for where to, you know, where to go or my, girl, my, my breast was shooting out. I kid you not. <laughs> wow. That, so breast, for, for that, breast for that, really bad anasaka or edema, you know, yeah. for all of that. Wow. Yeah. So, and when my heart is beating, you can literally see like you can physically see my heart shaking on my chest. Like you can see my heart going up and down. Like when, you know, cause my heart was struggling to pump blood throughout my body at this point, because again, I'm fluid overloaded. 
So everything is working extra hard to keep me going. Um, so anyway, on the same third day that swollen up, I started vomiting blood. And that was when my parents became very, very scared. And they put me in the car trying to look for this nephrologist at Lute. Mm. And because everyone had said she was the best and she knows her stuff. But we missed her house by a street or two. And so my dad was, because I, I was getting worse, my dad was really scared. So was my mom. So my dad, first of all, took me to Loot Hospital. Mm. And he went in to try and see if anyone knew her. But the, the, the site that greeted him, because Nigeria at this point was under a military dictatorship of Sani Abacha and things were going to the dots. And the sight that greeted him as he entered, my dad got so scared, he just came out. And he was like, he cannot leave me here. Hmm. So they took me to a different hospital, which was at the time one of the so-called best hospitals in Lagos. And then they took a look, a look at me and said, oh, it was my kidneys and X, Y, Z. They admitted me, they took me up. Again at this hospital, they put me on a drip. My kidneys are failing and you guys keep giving me drips. What is the, I mean, it's now that I'm older and I understand better. What is the problem? At that time, you should be working to get rid of the fluid, not give me more fluid, you know? And they put me on a drip and they're telling my dad, this is what's wrong. This is what they can do. This is X, Y, Z. My parents being absolute, they didn't, I mean, they'd never... Um, they had never had to deal with a situation like this before. So they didn't even know what they were dealing with, you know, and being so scared, whatever the doctor said they did, whatever, whenever they said pay this, they paid because for them, it was like, just help our daughter and, and what have you. But to cut the long story short, while I was at this hospital, they didn't even have a renal diet because now that I'm older and I have to take care of my own diet, I know what a renal diet is. They were feeding me with all the wrong food. Um, even the medication they were giving to me was wrong. It was until we got to London that we realized that the medication was wrong. And then finally, that's where I had my very first dialysis as a 16-year-old. And I remember my very first day on dialysis. They didn't put a line in. They didn't, I didn't have a fistula. Instead, they would go directly in my groin and put a needle in my arm to dialyze me. Wow which means they were not even dialyzing me properly. We're just going through the most fistula. No fistula. I didn't have a line. I didn't have a fistula. So they would go directly in my groin and in my arm, put a needle and dialyze me. Now this, I don't think you should be shocked by this, but when, as I'm on dialysis, it's my very first time, the light goes off, like no light, NEPA or whatever. And I remember it. And I could hear them screaming for someone to go to Nepal and say, blah, blah, blah. Now, ideally, a big hospital like that should have a backup generator. Um, and they were like, oh, the backup generator is for people on life support and that and that. So the woman, the nurse would start using her hand to turn the, dialyze, um, the dialysis machine. What? Yes. Yes. God is my witness. I don't need to lie about this. I was 16, but I remember it so well. It's my very first day on dialysis. The light goes off. She's using her hand to turn um, the machine, you know, the pump, the pump on the, on the dialysis machine. She's using her hand to turn it. Now, mind you, at the time, I, I wasn't fully up to speed with what dialysis does or, or the, the components or mechanisms of a dialysis machine. Mind you, I could have clotted within minutes. You understand? Because even here in the UK, say, for example, my dialysis machine is alarming. The first, thing is, the first thing they do is ensure that it stops alarming and then check to make sure I've not clotted or anything or see if, my, if, if I'm clotting by any chance or for any other reason why the machine is alarming or if my line is clotted. You understand? That, that's what you check. And I could have clotted on that machine with her using her hand to turn the, the pump. You understand? Yeah. I mean, um, my normal pump speed at the moment is 300. Sometimes I do 350. But here you are using your hand to turn the pump of a dialysis machine. That, that's not a pump speed. That's child's play. But that's what I was dealing with. Um, to cut the long story short, in the long term, after a few weeks at this hospital, it became apparent that they didn't know what they were doing. And um, 
you know, God was on my side the whole time. You know, I'm a woman of faith. And I always talk about my faith when I talk about my story. Mm. I, I do remember there was one particular evening, one of their own doctors came to my parents and said, you need to get out of here. They don't know what they're doing. Hmm. Yeah, this was one of their own doctors. He had just like, um, my parents started talking to him. He was a junior doctor. Um, and, and I think he had just finished um, his medical um, school at the time. And this was probably maybe one of his first jobs or something. But my parents had just had taken a liking to him and they would talk to him and really engage with him. And he too took a liking to my parents, you know. And he just, in the short um, space of time, in that few weeks, he, he became like a friend to my parents. He would advise them, calm them down. And every time he was, I, I remember he was always honest with my parents. You understand? Hmm. And the main cause of times of the hospital, they barely came around to see me. Whenever they came, it, it was one stupid rhetoric after another. And, and then I would not see them again until maybe a few weeks down the line or something, you know? And, and to cut the long story short, my dad finally managed to find this woman, the nephrologist. Yeah. And when she came to have a look at me at the hospital, they would not let her see my files or my folder. And, and it was quite baffling why they wouldn't let her see what they had been doing. You know, it was really strange. And, and also my dad found another doctor. I will forever remember his name. His name was Dr. Awoshika. And he came to have a look at me. And he was the first one to notice that I had actually had a stroke. But imagine the hospital I was in, they didn't notice wow yeah he noticed my left um my left side was funny my my i couldn't really move my leg or anything and even to move my arm was a challenge and also my face the positioning of my mouth on my face had shifted and i didn't know that those were signs of someone um, who had had a stroke you know because I, I do remember my face was funny looking. My parents noticed it, but they just told me because I was ill. But yeah. he was the one who explained to my parents that I had had a stroke. Which now, when I look back, it makes sense because my blood pressure was so high. You yeah. understand? Yeah. And, and um, he told my, again, they would not let him see my medical file. And, you know, my parents found it quite puzzling that what's going on? Why are they not letting these doctors that they've brought in externally to have a look at me? see my files and stuff so when the lady nephrologist when she came she said to my dad to be honest the damage is far gone mm. and she really cannot help me but if my dad can get me out of that hospital she might be able to do something to help and and um she recommended a, a hospital called life support medical center and their speciality was renal disease and it was like the most, how will I put it? The most up-to-date dialysis unit that at that time that we could find in Nigeria to help us. And um, so she advised my parents to, to take me to this place. So my dad took me there. You know, the first day they dialyzed me at this at Life Support Medical Center, it was, it was like heaven came to earth. Wow. For the first time in weeks, in fact, even months, I had some level of relief. Mm. Like I could, I could finally speak. I could finally talk properly because at some point you could barely hear me say anything because I was just muttering and, and because I was in so much pain, all I could do was, mm, that's how my parents knew the pain was bad, you know, or when it was really bad, I would scream, but it would take all the energy I had to scream. Oh, I forgot to mention. By the time I got to life support, I could barely see. Wow. Yeah, I couldn't see properly. It was as if one was partially blind. It was later that it was explained to us that because there was so much fluid, so the fluid was just looking for where it could like flow itself. So that's why I couldn't see properly. And after like um, two or three weeks of dialysis at life support, I could see again. I could read and things like that again. But I remember the first time they dialyzed me, they took off so much fluid. My parents were in shock. Like they couldn't believe that's the amount of fluid I, I, I was loaded with. The amount that you'd been in. Yeah, you know. And then gradually my blood pressure started coming down. My, when my heart is beating, 
it wasn't as bad as because when my heart is beating whatever night dress i had on was just shaking like you know it was as if the breeze was blowing or something it was that bad and and the lady that owned life support i'm going to tell you a funny story the it, it was hannah husband that owned life support the owner's source yes yeah and and um you know she was so kind to my parents and she was so brutally honest because the nephrologist had told us to go there and i, I don't know if they knew how or not but she said to my parents there's nothing more i can do i can only dialyze her the damage is already um far gone mm. is irreversible but i can dialyze her to get on a plane if you can if you can get her to london or the u.s you, you at least have a chance of her surviving she was very like she just put the whole thing on the table for my parents at the time my dad um was working with some british company um you know, as an agent in nigeria yeah and so he was able to get them to help organize to fly me out and things like that they organized a hospital for us because my dad didn't know hospitals in the uk he had lived most of his life uh, at least when i was growing up at the time in the u.s but getting the, to the uk was a, a, a safer and quicker option in terms of flight distance yes you know so we opted for the uk um, my dad my parents opted for the uk to bring me here and the first hospital i went to was called the london bridge hospital is that is actually located at london, london bridge yeah and that was where i went to and i remember the first doctor i saw his name was dr ahmed i won't forget him he was such a funny doctor sometimes mm-hmm. and um he examined me the first time and and what have you and i remember the first question he asked me was the first thing he said to me was you're the luckiest 16 year old i've ever met because with a blood pressure like this you shouldn't be alive hmm. yeah and then my mom showed him all the medication i had been taking like all the different things they had been giving me at the different hospitals we had been to with the exception of life support everything else was the wrong medication hmm. and and so I started dialysis here and they put a line in for me because the doctor had asked my parents, oh, what were they using to dialyze? And so my, my parents were looking at him like, well, they just put a needle in my arm and da, da, da. And um, they put a line in and they started dialyzing me. And then gradually, 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 you know, things started getting better. Mm. But mind you, um, I mean, I have a picture of, that was taken of me the very first night I came to London. I'll email it to you. Okay. If you see that picture and my pictures now, you you would not believe it's the same person. Wow. And um, yeah, that's that's how I found myself on dialysis. And I remember at the hospital when we first came to London, they were very honest with my parents, and they said, "Oh, you know what? The damage is so far gone; her kidneys will never work again." This was the first time that someone had verbalized that my kidneys would never work again. And that I would have to be on dialysis for the rest of my life or if I get a transplant. And mind you, my parents don't know what transplant is. And after it was explained to them, my father was scared out of his Like, even my mom, they were both very scared. Like, what is this? You know, because they are learning as they go along. And all of this is new to them. So that's how I found myself on dialysis for the first six years. So I lived on dialysis from the age of 16 to the age of 22 when I finally had my first um, transplant but going back just a little bit the funny story i wanted to tell you mm. the people the 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 couple who owned life support after i left nigeria i had no contact with them nothing nothing you understand mm. and then last year mind you there's a writer called chibundo on chibundu oh, on yeah. Yeah. and i know her i i've spoken to her a few times i've read her uh first novel the um um, yeah, yeah, you know. yeah, Spider King's daughter. Is it? Yes, and yeah. I, I even reviewed it for the New African Woman and, oh, wow. <laughs> and things like that. But I never knew the um, the Late. owners of Life Support were her parents. Yes. So last year, when my brother who lives in Canada came to visit me, he saw her book on my bookshelf, and he was like, "Do you remember her? Do you remember her?" So I was like, of course I know her. She's a writer. You're like, no, no, no. Do you remember life support? Her parents own life support. I almost, I almost fell out from shock. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh my word. This life is indeed, it goes around in circles. So when I saw her, I saw her at um, Africa Rights later last year. Yeah. 
And I said, I have a story to tell you. Your mom saved my life. Wow. And I told her the whole story. And I said, your mom was the only person who was honest with my parents about what was wrong with me. I was like, I never knew that those were your parents. So she took a picture with me that she's going to send to her mom and say, she's not a journalist and that, 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 you know? So, so yeah, it just goes to show that the world is indeed a small place, you know? So yeah, the honors have saved my life. Life Support Medical Center is the reason I'm talking to you today. Wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that's kind of me in a nutshell and my journey to um, dialysis, which was basically a series of misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis after misdiagnosis. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really painful when somebody's wrong decision changes the course of your life. Mm-hmm. But I, I cannot dwell on that because if I dwell on that, then I'll be very bitter and I'll always, I'll be angry all of the time, you know? So, so yeah, that's how I find myself, found myself on dialysis and, um, and you know, pretty much it, it didn't, it didn't look promising if I'm honest. Uh, yes, I was alive, but dialysis is so time consuming yeah it 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 practically takes over your life it becomes it, it, in my case it becomes your boyfriend is the thing you see the most hmm. you know the nurse is more than you know your own house <laughs> you know and, and you see the doctors more than you probably see some of your own friends and things like that so it's very time consuming i i i have this analogy for dialysis it's i see it as this lover there you 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 are in a relationship with because you haven't got a choice Mm -hmm. and um this particular lover for example you can't stand them you don't like them you don't want to be in the same room with them but maybe because you share property or children you show up for whatever is necessary Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, in my case dialysis keeps me alive so whether i like it or not i still have to respect the process Mm -hmm. and show up for every dialysis besides i'm i'm i i know what it is to not have dialysis or miss a few dialysis sessions for one reason or the other. And that feeling, that uneasiness, you can't breathe, you can't even eat, you're vomiting, you know, it's like your, your heart is going to jump out of your chest because you're filled up with toxins and, and you just need some form of relief. Because I've experienced that, I wouldn't dare miss one session of dialysis as much as I do not like dialysis. And, and also, it keeps me alive. So you also have to show respect for the process because when you start disrespecting the process, you, start, you stop going for dialysis and you're putting yourself in danger. So that, you know, that's, that's the way I kind of contextualize living on dialysis right now. Like, it's just this thing I have to do or otherwise I'm dead and I have to respect the process. So dialysis for me is that love or that. I do not like them at all, but I, I still have to show up for it. You it's, like, it's like a give and take situation. It keeps me alive, but what I have to give to it is time. So, so that, that's, that's the way I see it. Wow. Thank you so, so much, Belinda, for sharing your story. It's, um, it, it, you know, it, it sounds like you definitely went through quite a lot to get to, to get to where you are today. And thank God for Dr. and Dr. Onuzo, who, um, <laughs> who had a setup in Nigeria that was effective, yeah. worked, that they were practicing good yeah. medicine, and they were also honest and were able to have a very candid conversation with your parents. Absolutely. That has then enabled you to live the long, full life that you've then been able to live after that time. Yeah. If you were to give our listeners a championship point, something for them to remember you by about living full with dialysis, what would you say to them? Oh my goodness. I mean, let me, let me, let me backtrack a little bit before I give you the three points. Mm-hmm. I had my first transplant when I was 22 mm-hmm. and it served me very well for 15 years. Yeah. Then in 2017, I had my second transplant, which unfortunately did not work. And this is the thing with transplants. You, there is no, um, nothing prepares you for what the outcome could be. Yeah. But you still have to take that that um that bold step, yeah, and go for it because you might say to yourself, "What if it doesn't work?" However, what if it does work and you get fifteen good years, which allowed me to go back to school, to my studies. I went to university. I did a, 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 a an NCTJ postgrad. Um, you know, I started working as a journalist. I got my first job at the BBC. And then I went freelance because I really wanted to write about Africa and African stories mm-hmm. and, you know, found a new African woman, which was like a home to me. 
and, and all of that and built a wonderful portfolio, portfolio, work portfolio that I'm very proud of. I mean, I've been blessed to interview the likes of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, um, Oswald Boateng, Ama Asante, Ngozi Okoje Wela, Lema Bowie, who is a, a Nobel laureate. You know, if I was on dialysis, I might not have been able to do those things. But because I had a transplant, it gave me a second chance. And this is why I'm a big, big proponent of organ donation among black, the Black British community as well as the African um, British community. And I do um, awareness work in that respect. Yeah. You know, so, so my second, my first transplant was a blessing. It, it gave me so much. It gave me freedom to just be. Unfortunately, my second transplant did not work. And that's the, that's the other side of a transplant. It, might, it, it could well not work. But anytime, any day, I'm a proponent for organ donation and going for it because I had the experience of 15 years of bliss with my first transplant. And, and, it, and it gave me a voice. I found myself, I got to understand me as a person um, outside the identity of being on dialysis. You know, I'm so much more than just the girl who lives on dialysis. I'm a wholesome human being in that regard. And, and now that I'm back on dialysis because my second transplant did not work, um, I'm not, I still do not like dialysis, um, but I'm not bitter. I take it every day, one step at a time. And I always say, you know, God has got me and whatever this season is supposed to be for, it will also, it will also reveal itself in time. But the, the interesting part about being back on dialysis a second time around is that I went back on dialysis in 2018, January, 2018. So mm -hmm. it's been two years since I've been back on dialysis now. Prior to being back on dialysis, I spoke about my health and my, my journey, but not in, 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 uh, um, not on a, on a platform like social media. A few of my friends knew here and there. But, you know, being back on dialysis now, I, I finally found the boldness to just ignore all of the stigmatization that comes with living, being Nigerian, being African, and, and the way we um, either intentionally or unintentionally stigmatize ourselves due to a medical condition and all the meat and all the beliefs and the cultural whatever baggage that comes with it. I found a way to just go above that and be open about my health and, and started, you know, doing this awareness work that um, prior to coming back on dialysis a second time never even crossed my mind. So in a way, I have found some level of purpose, even with being back on dialysis mm -hmm. and to be able to talk about it openly, being invited to places to talk about it. I've done a TED talk about it. I never, I never dreamt about that. That never even crossed my mind, you know, um, until the coronavirus hit recently, I was preparing to go to the UK parliament and also talk about living on dialysis and why, as I, you might be aware that a new law is coming into place this spring where everybody's automatically on the organ donation register yeah. and you have to opt out, you know, and I was, you know, I'd been invited by Kidney Care UK to, to come and share my experience on, on that. So, if, I, if I'm going to say anything to your listeners, I think it will be one, consider becoming an organ donor because we are the ones who can help ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and also black to black, African to African, you have a better chance of, of a better match and it working for much longer and being more suitable. You know, And we shouldn't be afraid to have that conversation. If we are not aware, we don't know, let's ask questions because we're the only ones who can help ourselves. And it's one way of destigmatizing things and, and, and negating um, or at least getting around the, the false information out there about the organ donation, as well as addressing the concerns and the fears that people have. Um, if I'm going to say, I think the second thing I will say is, no matter the situation you find yourself, however good or bad, you know, I'm, I'm a person, I, I, I practice intentional gratitude. I believe being intentionally grateful for where you are allows you to, to look forward with hope and faith. And, and so the second thing I would say is no matter you, where you are right now in life, no matter your circumstance, situation, um, at all times, it's always better to be on the side of faith over fear. Mm. And, 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 and I think the third thing I would say is 
no matter no, oh how would i put it live on purpose even with a health condition even with your challenges live on purpose because that gives you the energy to keep going and i say that from personal experience you know like in the last um since 2017 when you know when the journey to going back to on um, dialysis started you know it, i had to question myself and what my purpose is and and what i'm here to do and it really matters because when you live on purpose and when you're working on living on purpose there's a there's a renewed perspective on life there's there's um, a rejuvenation in terms of your energy to keep going now that's not to say you don't get upset or you there are days when you won't be in the dumps but there's something about having a purpose that you know it just it puts a smile on your face and 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 it gives you a newness to keep pushing to keep going and and finally when you're in the dumps because depression is something i have to deal with and it's a big part of living on dialysis as well you know don't be afraid to ask for help mm. like seriously don't i i've seen ter- i've seen a therapist a psychologist um in in the last 3 years that i've been back on dialysis because it, it you need help to process what you're going through and to unload or offload the feelings that you have that you might not be able to explain to everyone. Yeah. So I found therapy to be a safe space, you know, to open up. So I think those are the three things I would say, become an organ donor, live on purpose. And if you're in the dumps and you don't see a way out, ask for help. And if you are a Christian and you think it's, 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 it's ungodly to go to therapy. Well, guess what? Jesus was the best psychologist in the world. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> that's the that's the way I say it. I see it because he he always knew what to say when people were in the dumps and and had to get them out of it. And I know we're living in 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 a really in really surreal and strange times with the coronavirus. I mean. I've been told to stay indoors for 12 weeks. The only place I go to right now is the hospital for my treatment. And sometimes I get nervous because some dialysis patients, unfortunately, have died as a result of um, yes. you know, getting the coronavirus because, um, because of their health. Because of my health, I'm in the, I'm in the vulnerable at-risk um, group. You know, I've had two transplants. I've been on immunosuppressants since I was 22. So, and it's probably like that for other patients. And, and so it's, it's, it's a scary time to, to, to have a medical condition that is considered chronic, you understand? Mm-hmm. But I, I try to keep myself um, upbeat. I, I try to remain hopeful. Um, sometimes I get scared, very scared. And then I call a friend to say, okay, this is happening. What do I do? And, and, and in their own way, they try to calm me down. So I, I think those are the three things that I would say, you know, become an organ donor, at least consider it, live on purpose, go out there, do your thing, live your life. Forget the, the, the drama or the, the, the whatever is going on on social media because nobody puts the rough part of their life on social media. They only put the, the good part. So don't even go with that flow, go with your flow. And, and whatever happens, always always fate over fear and if you need help don't be ashamed or afraid to ask for help i love that That what saves you yeah Yeah. faith over fear and ask for help when you need it there's no asking for help thank you so so much belinda for sharing your story i'm sure it's going to go a long way in encouraging our listeners I hope so. I really hope so. And, and, and I look forward to a day. I think one of my biggest hopes and dreams right now is the day I'll log into Twitter or Facebook and I don't see a GoFundMe by Nigerian asking for help for a Nigerian who is on dialysis and they need help to go to India. I, need, I, I'm, I look forward to a day and I pray it's in my lifetime that we'll be able to take care of our own on our own soil and we'll have the medical facilities for 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 re- chronic renal disease chronic heart heart disease you name it whatever it is 
that a day will come when we are no longer beggars on social media in order to live, but we will have the infrastructure to take care of our own. That's one of my dreams and hopes for Nigeria as a Nigerian living in the diaspora. And, and sometimes that's, not even sometimes, that's why I'm always very grateful for the NHS. You understand? Yeah. It's one of the reasons I'm still able to talk to you. I cannot tell you the number of times the NHS has come through for me. I mean, just last year, for example, in April, I was found unconscious and unresponsive in my flat. And the reason anybody found me was because I had not shown up for dialysis and there was a protocol in place. When a patient doesn't come, check on them. It took the police breaking my window down to find me on my bed, unconscious and non-responsive, and I was taken to the hospital. And by the time I came around, I had suffered from retrograde and anti-grade amnesia. And it took some real work to, to remember as much of my life as I do. Wow. And also there are chunks that I still don't remember. And, you know, I've not given up trying to remember, but I'm just letting the process take, take its due course, if I can put it like that. But I'm telling you that story because if, if it had been in Nigeria and I was living alone and no one had seen me for, for the number of days that I was apparently out stone cold, and I think it will be a different story. We, we both know that, you understand? Because when they found me, I believe my sugar level was 1.6 or 1.7. Oh my goodness. And I don't know, up until then, I didn't know much about, you know, the, 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 the power of sugar in, in, in the human body. Wow. But later when it was explained to me, it was like you were practically at death's door. If, if you had not been found when you were found, you, I would not, if I, or rather, let me put it like this. If I had not been found when they found me, I wouldn't be talking to you. You understand? Yeah. So I really, really hope that in my lifetime, Nigeria will be able to take care of its own citizens. That, that's another prayer of mine. Yeah. Yeah. And amen to that. I agree with that. And I really do hope that we both see it in both our lifetimes. Um, Cause that would mean that we've come a really long way in. Very much so. <laughs> Very much so. So I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And if any of your listeners, you know, find themselves living on dialysis or if they have questions and they throw that to you, I'm, I'm, I'm up for helping to answer questions about my journey. It's totally okay. That's amazing thank you so so much for that thank you, thank you for coming on thank you for having me thank you so much thank you thank you for joining us on today's episode do share this podcast with two people who have not heard about us before remember that this podcast in no way replaces advice from your own doctor or physician do subscribe and follow us on social media leave us a review on itunes so that others can access the amazing content And do join the club at asliceofhealth.club and drop us some suggestions or questions that you might have. Don't forget to be a health champion wherever you go by separating health fact from health fiction.